scripture and dig in to the Word of God. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we're thankful that You have redeemed the church, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, has been offered up. And it is our desire, Lord, to partake of this the meal that we take of as a church without the leaven of sin, but to do it in unleavened in, in righteousness and holiness and sincerity and truth, to be a pure church, a church that honors Christ, a church that takes holiness very seriously. And when we do that, we see in the book of Acts that the, the culture fears the church. The rest are afraid because it's a people that deal with their sin, a people who are not hip, hypocritical, a people who walk in holiness. And so the, the rest dare not associate with us, but those who are converted want in. So that you're either all in or all out. And that's the kind of church we want to be. People who love Christ, gather and worship Him. But people who do not love Him would have nothing to do with our church, but yet they would have a high respect for our church because they know how serious we are about the things of God. And then as a church, we go into the world with the Gospel and we plead with sinners to come to Christ in hopes that those who are saved would bear fruit, proving to be Christ's disciples and then would be added to the church. So help us to be that kind of church, Father. A pure church, an evangelistic church, a church that brings honor and glory to Your name, a church that we already are by Your grace. So thankful to shepherd this people what an honor it is, and what an honor it is to lead them in the worship of our God. And now we come to the height of that worship when we open the Scripture, when we hear the voice of God from heaven, when we get to hear our Savior speak, and now we pray that You would help us to understand what Your Word says in this specific portion, help us to love the truth more, and help us to know how to apply these things to our lives for Your glory. To which end we pray. Amen. All right, as you know, we are in the midst of a study of the book of 1 John. 1 John, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And uh, this morning we'll continue our consecutive exposition of this book by looking at verses 12 through 14. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Uh, So far, John has been driving home the theme of Christian assurance. Christian assurance. That's John's theme. That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you're saved. He's combating the counterfeit version of Christianity that's being purveyed by the heretics. And the way he seeks to combat that is by laying out a series of tests by which we can distinguish between true Christianity and false Christianity. A series of tests by which we can ascertain the true nature of our spiritual condition. And there are, as you know, three tests that John lays out again and again, and we've already looked at all of them, and we're going to get more of that as we work our way through the book. But those three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The true believer believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. And John has been relentless in this so far. John just speaks in such straightforward black and white terms. There's just no, seemingly no gray areas with John. With John, you're either this or you're that. You're either living in obedience to God or you're not a Christian. You either love your brother or you're not a Christian. That's the way it is with John. He just doesn't let up all that often. He did give a little glimmer of hope back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Now there he said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous. So Christians do sin. Christians do fall into sin. And when they do, they're forgiven by the work of Christ, our mediator, our divine defense attorney who died for us, lives for us, and intercedes for us. So there is hope for the Christian. There is hope. But then he went right back at it. In verses 3 through 6, you're either living a life of obedience to the commandments of God or you're not a Christian. Verses 7 through 11. You're either loving the brother or you're in the darkness. There's no in between. John just lays it out so clearly. But now, in verses 12 to 14, if you need a break from all of this, if the last several weeks or months have seemed overwhelming with a constant call to self examination, the constant call to question the validity of your salvation, in this passage, John provides us that break. He lets up a little bit and provides us with a little bit of encouragement. Let's read these verses together. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. John writes, I'm writing to you, little children, 
Because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. One essential element of life is growth. All life is characterized by growth. Plant life grows, right? You go plant the seeds, and what happens? It starts to sprout up, and it grows and gets bigger, unless you're like me, and you don't take care of them, and they die. But if they're living and healthy, they grow. Plant life grows. Human biological life grows. And so it is with spiritual life. Spiritual life is marked by growth. Spiritual life is marked by growth. We go from childhood to adulthood. We go from adolescent to adult. We go from children to grown-ups. That's the way it works. There's growth. If there's no growth, then we detect a problem. If there's no growth, maybe there's a disease or a sickness. Maybe there's a terminal disease preventing the growth of the person. And so it is spiritually. If there's no growth at all, you should question whether or not you're alive at all. In fact, John in these verses provides us with the various categories of growth. Three levels of spiritual growth. And all of these levels, by the way, correspond to the natural levels of human growth. Namely, children, young men, and fathers. These are the categories that all Christians fall into. Every Christian in this room this morning falls into one of those three categories. In fact, there's only one other category in which you can fall, and that's spiritually dead. That's unbeliever. You're either spiritually alive, or you're spiritually dead. There is no in-between. And all believers, those who are alive spiritually, are either children, that is the most spiritually immature, young men, those who've experienced some degree of spiritual growth, or fathers, those who are the most spiritually mature of the bunch. And while it should be true that the longer you've been a Christian, the more mature you are, that's not necessarily the case, is it? In fact, it's true in some cases that people who are Christians for very long periods of time are very immature, but those who are Christians for a very short period of time have made great progress in the faith. So the the duration of your Christian life, the length of your Christian life, the physical age of your life, those are not the determining factors as to which category you fall into. But every Christian falls into one of these three categories and every Christian experiences some degree of spiritual growth. All throughout Scripture we are commanded to grow. Growth is not optional. Growth is our duty. Growth is a command from heaven. In Ephesians chapter 4, you can turn there with me if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 4. A very familiar chapter to us, no doubt. But there in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul kind of explains this process of growth to us. Very wonderful passage. And I'll start reading in verse 11. Ephesians 4 verse 11. There Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are the leaders of the church. And why has God given leaders to the church? Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So Christ gives leaders to the church to equip the whole church to do the work of ministry. The whole church to do the work of ministry, so that the whole church is built up. And this happens, verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. A mature man, that's the goal. What does a mature man look like? What does a mature Christian look like? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. That's maturity. Christ-likeness. To be mature is to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. And the result of that, verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children. We need to grow up. We can't remain spiritual children forever. We need to advance to young men and fathers. We need to press on to maturity. And what are children like? 
What are children like? Look at verse 14 again. They're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. They're doctrinally insecure. They're theologically gullible, easily deceived. That's what spiritual children are marked by. They're just tossed back and forth between doctrinal positions. However, mature believers are described in verse 15. Verse 15 he says, but speaking the truth in love, that's what mature Christians do. Mature Christians are theologically settled. They have doctrinal, strong doctrinal convictions. They know the Word of God. So much so, they can speak the truth in love to others. So speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are to grow. We are to make spiritual progress. We are to press on in the faith. We are not to remain children. We are to grow up and become young men and fathers. What would you think of a, of a human being who remained a child forever? Right? That's why my wife gets upset with me because I remain a child sometimes. Right? What, that's not the right thing to do. We need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to press on. So all life then is characterized by growth. But John's desire here is not to provide a treatise on spiritual growth. John's desire here is to mention the various categories of growth and address all Christians regardless of where they are in the totem pole and provide them with some encouragement. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual growth, John has encouraging words to you this morning. Now you'll notice that this passage is very repetitive. Very poetic, very rhythmic. It's very, very repetitive here. Notice that John makes six statements in these verses that either begin with, I am writing to you, or I have written to you. From the past to the present. Why the transition? The transition is probably a transition from John's perspective and the reader's perspective. From John's perspective, while he was writing the letter, he was doing it in the present. From the reader's perspective, once they received the letter and read the letter, the letter would have been written, obviously, in the past. I have written to you. But very, very poetic. So six statements. Each of the statements are followed up with the word because, indicating purpose. Purpose. In these verses, John expresses some of the purposes for which he writes the letter. So what's John doing then? What's John doing here? By stylistic, rhythmic, poetic repetition, he is seeking to reassure his readers of certain Christian truths. He's seeking to encourage them by reminding them of their privileges as Christians. And that's very timely, isn't it? We've gone through this letter for several months now, and over and over again, the constant theme is, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? But now John lets up and he says, you're a Christian. And here's what's true for you. Here's what's true for you. His tone isn't primarily polemical, it's pastoral. It's not primarily negative, it's positive. It's not primarily about causing you to doubt your salvation, but causing you to have assurance of your salvation. That's John's purpose. And this morning, as John emphasizes several of his purposes for writing, all of which, by the way, contribute to the main purpose, that you may know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5.13. And as he does this, he provides his readers with three things that are true for all Christians regardless of their level of spiritual maturity. Three things that are true for all Christians. And as we consider these truths, it's my hope that each of you would be encouraged and assured of your own salvation. So three things that are true for all Christians regardless of their level of spiritual maturity. Number one, number one, all true Christians are forgiven. All true Christians are forgiven. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. Now, there are a few different ways that the various commentators interpret this passage. Some say that John's reference to little children in verse 12 is a different group than he addresses in verse 13. And they say that because there are actually two Greek words used here. In verse 12, he uses the word technion, technion, translated here in the NAS as little children. And then in verse 13, he uses the word pideon, which 
is translated as children in the NAS. So some say John's talking about two different groups. He's talking about two different groups. I don't think that's the case. I think John's talking about the same group in verse 12 and verse 13. I think he's talking about those who are the most spiritually immature, the newest babes in Christ, those who are on the lowest degree of the totem pole, spiritually speaking. And I think that because if you notice the rhythmic nature of the passage, the six statements that John makes, two of them are addressed to young men, two of them are addressed to the fathers, and then two of them would be addressed to the little children. So I think John is talking about the same group. And what is it that John says? Even to those who are spiritually immature, even to those who are maybe babes in Christ, you look at these tests and you say, man, I barely even passed them. I barely even passed the test of 1 John. I'm as immature as it gets. What hope is there for you? What encouragement is there for you? John tells us. He says, even to the children, your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. That's the good news. No matter how immature you are in the faith, no matter how theologically weak you may be in the faith, if you are a true Christian, you are forgiven of all your sins for His name's sake. And that word forgiven comes from two words, apa and the word haimi, and it means to send away. That's what the word means. To send away. To cast away. Cast into the sea. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's cast our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. All of our sin taken away, moved out of the way. Why? Because Colossians 2 tells us it's been nailed to the cross of Christ. All of our iniquities, all of our sin, all of our lawless deeds, all of our rebellion, nailed to the cross of Jesus. He takes the punishment. He pays the penalty. He bore the wrath. And therefore, our sins are forgiven. In chapter 1, verse 7, John already emphasized that we're forgiven by the work of Christ. Back in verse 7, he said, the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Are we forgiven just of some sin? Just partial sin? Oh, no, wait, just past sin. No, John says all sin. Past, present, and future. That's a glorious thing. If you realize the depth of your own depravity and the wickedness of your own heart, you realize that you and I have sinned enough this morning to fall right into hell, and yet we are forgiven totally, completely, exhaustively by the finished work of Jesus. In chapter nine, or chapter one, verse nine, he said, "If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness." Forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And how does He do that? How does God forgive us? We've talked about that back in chapter two, verses one and two, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Remember, Jesus is our divine defense attorney. He's our divine lawyer, pleading the case, our case before the Father. He's the one who died under the wrath of God, who paid the penalty for sin, who satisfied God's justice, and provides perfect, complete Forgiveness for us. We are forgiven by the work of Christ. That's the good news of the Gospel. That's the primary promise of the Gospel that all of your sin is forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if this is true for children, if even the most spiritually immature believers have all of their sins forgiven, then certainly it's true for all believers regardless of what category you fall into in terms of spiritual maturity. All believers are forgiven. Of course, there's something we have to do in response to the Gospel to be forgiven. We have to appropriate the work of Christ. We have to lay hold of that forgiveness. And what is it that God requires? What is it that God commands of you that you might be forgiven? We we know the answer. Repent and believe, right? That's what God requires. For us to be forgiven, our part is to repent and believe the Gospel. In Luke 24, verse 47, Jesus said that repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in His name among the nation. It's repentance that brings about forgiveness. 
In Acts 10.43, the Apostle Peter told the Gentiles, All the prophets testify of Him that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. That's it. That's what you have to do. Repent, turn away from your sin, and believe. Trust in Christ alone. And you do that, God forgives all of your sin. Isn't that amazing? Amazing all of your sin? No matter how bad you messed up this week, no matter how bad of a week you might have had, you're forgiven completely in Christ. And you're just as forgiven on your worst day as you are on your best day because your forgiveness is not dependent upon you or your righteousness or your works or your merit, but solely upon the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, you are not forgiven. You are guilty of your sin, and you are condemned for your sin, and you stand at this moment under the wrath of God. But if you are a Christian, you're forgiven of all your sin because Jesus' work is finished and sufficient. What did He say on the cross? It is finished. To tell us that I paid in full, so our sins are sent away. Now notice that this forgiveness is for His name's sake. For His name's sake. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means for His glory. God forgives sinners for His own glory. For His praise. He does everything that He does for His own glory. Everything. Do you realize this? The Bible is not about you and me. Do you know that? The Bible, we need to convince people of that in American evangelicalism. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is preeminently a book about God, about the glory of God. And anything that impugns on His glory is a blasphemous lie. It's all about His glory. He created us for His glory. He saves us for His glory. He forgives us for His glory. It's all about the glory of Jesus. It's theocentric. It's God-centered, not man-centered. It's about His glory, not our glory. Ephesians 1 says this. Glorious chapter. Read Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 4, Paul says, He, that is God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And why did He do that? Why did He choose you? Why did He predestine you? Why did He save you? Verse 6, For the praise of the glory of His grace. What does that mean? It means God saved you so that He would be glorified in the demonstration of His sovereign grace. That's why. That's why. If you read the Bible and you come to the conclusion that man is central, that free will is central, then you have read the Bible wrongly. It is about the glory of God. Why did God shut up everybody under sin? Why did God put the tree in the garden? Why did God not only allow, but decree Adam and Eve's sin? Why did He decree the death of His own Son? Why did He do these things? For His own glory. It's all about the glory of God. It's not about your effort. It's not about your merit. It's not about any goodness in you. It's for because of His person, His work, in His glory. Just yesterday, what did we celebrate? What's the answer? Reformation, Reformation Day, right? Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Catholic Church door in Wittenberg. I know what you're thinking. No, that happened last night at the Nedro Fire Department. No, I was an imposter. I'm not the real Martin Luther. So Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, catapulting the Protestant Reformation, and the mantra cry of the Reformation was sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, sola Deo gloria. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. That's the Gospel. It's all about His work, His person, His glory. Psalm 106.8 puts it this way, He saved them for the sake of His name, so that He might make His power known. That's what it means. God wanted to display His power. That's why He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did He harden Pharaoh? To display His judgment and His power. 
Why did He save Israel? Why does He save you and me? To display His powerful, glorious grace. God's purposes can't be thwarted. This isn't a, a pathetic God trying to save people and failing and hoping everything works out for the best and predicting the future. This is a God who wrote the, the history of the world. He's the author of the book and He's sovereign and His purposes come to pass and it's all about His glory. Isaiah 48.9 says, The Lord says this, For the sake of My name I delay My wrath, and for My praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. That's what it means. That it's for the sake of His name. It's for His praise. His praise. Then in verse 11 He says, For My own sake, for My own sake I will act, for how can My name be profaned, and My glory I will not give to another. So what does it mean that He does it for His name's sake? It means He does it for the magnification of His own name. We are secondary in our salvation. God is primary. God saves us. Yes, He loves us. Yes, He forgives us. Those are glorious truths. But the primary reason He does it is for His glory. There is absolutely nothing in you and me that merits salvation. There's absolutely nothing in you and me that moves God to provide us with salvation. No one can slap themselves on the back and say, good job, I did it. This isn't a cooperation. This isn't synergism. This isn't work with God. This is monergism. One agent. God does it, and He gets all the glory because He does all the work. It is for the glory of His name. So the source of forgiveness is the grace and mercy of God. The basis for forgiveness is the substitutionary death of Christ. The means by which we attain the forgiveness is repentance and faith in Christ. And the purpose for the forgiveness is the glory of Christ. That is a gospel worth believing. That is a gospel worth preaching. That is the biblical gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've heard all your life, God loves you, He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus is begging you to come. He's going to weep eternal tears of sorrow if you don't come to Him. Friends, they got the wrong Jesus. This Jesus doesn't need anybody. But in His powerful, sovereign, mighty grace, He's saving His people and He's going to be glorified in it. That's a Jesus worth following. And again, if the most immature babes in Christ have been forgiven, then all Christians can trust that they've been forgiven for His name's sake. So all true Christians are forgiven. But there's a second thing that's true for all Christians, regardless of their level of spiritual maturity, and that's this. All true Christians know God. All true Christians know God. Look at verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. So John goes from children to fathers, from addressing the children to the fathers. Who are the fathers? Obviously, the word father could refer to someone who imparts life. That's what the word means. It, it could refer to a literal, real, physical father. It could also be used metaphorically to refer to an older person, an elder. But here, John's using it with reference to spiritual maturity. The fathers are those who are the most spiritually mature in the faith. They're the ones that you know are godly, mature believers who have been walking with the Lord for some time. Spiritually mature. And what's John's word to them? Why is John writing to them? Because you know Him who has been from the beginning. Who's that? Who's that? God. God. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. God. God's been from the beginning. Psalm 92, Moses says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is the one from the beginning. He's the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I Am. He is the Eternal One. And of course, this would include all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is the one from the beginning. According to, according to Hebrews 9.14, the Holy Spirit is the Eternal Spirit. He's there from the beginning. We read Genesis 1, verse 2, what do we find? The Spirit's there hovering over the face of the waters, there at the beginning in creation. But perhaps John 
specifically has Jesus in mind here. In John 1.1, what does He say? In the beginning was the Word. Jesus was there. How did John open the epistle? The first two verses. By affirming the eternality of Christ. Verse 1, He said that Christ is the One who is from the beginning, the Word of life. Jesus is the eternal God. He's always existed. So John says he's writing to the fathers because they know this eternal God. They know this eternal Christ. They know Him, and He wants to reassure them of that. It's as if He's saying, the heretics were wrong. You've got it right. You've got it right. They've come up with their new truth. By the way, there's no such thing as new truth. Truth is old. It's from antiquity. It's from the mind and heart of God from everlasting The seed of all truth is revealed in the Old Testament. You don't get new truth in the New Testament. You get the full and final revelation of the same truth. But the heretics came along with their new truth. And they upsetted the believers. And John says, they're wrong. You're right. You've known Him who has been from the beginning. And he makes the same statement in verse 14. Look at verse 14. This time speaking from the past tense. I've written to you fathers... Because you know Him who has been from the beginning. They know the eternal God. Now you say, but that's fathers. That's the most spiritually mature. Of course they know God. But what about the babes in Christ? What about the immature? What about the children? What about most of us, right? Who are struggling along in our day-to-day walk with the Lord and can't really figure out theology and we're confused on doctrine. What about us? Do we know God? Do the babes in Christ know God? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Look at verse 13. The last statement. The last statement. After saying, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one, he then adds, I've written to you children because you know the Father. You know the Father. Even the babes in Christ know the Father. And again, the word... For children, there's a different word than verse 12. And this one refers usually to infants, children under the age of seven a lot of times. So though it's true that all of God's children, all of all believers are God's children, there are those who could be placed in that category because of spiritual immaturity. But even they, even the most immature believer on the planet, knows God as His Father. Now obviously this wouldn't be the same profound, deep knowledge that a father who's been walking with the Lord for years has. But even so, the believer, the most immature, newest believer, knows God as his father, and it is a saving knowledge nonetheless. What do babies know? Babies come out of the womb, and they don't don't even know the name of their father. They don't know the name of their mother. They They don't understand their address. They don't get all of the details, but... They know and recognize their parents and they love them. And they cry for them. And they want them. And so it is, even with the very newest believer, he doesn't have to know all theology. He doesn't have to be an expert theologian. But he knows God as his Father. And he loves Him. Remember, to know God is to be saved. That's what it is. It is to be saved. At the very beginning, John stated that his, one of his purposes was so that we too might have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That we would come into this glorious fellowship. John 17.3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is to know God in Christ. It is to be in a saving relationship with God through Christ. And all believers, regardless of their spiritual maturity, know God in this way. The goal now is to grow in our knowledge of God, right? To grow. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter equated spiritual growth in grace with growth in knowledge. He said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's no growth in grace without growth in knowledge. You don't make progress in spiritual maturity without filling your mind with knowledge of God's truth and of God's glory. We've come to know Him. Now we want to grow. Philippians 3.10, Paul said, Oh, that I may know Him. Oh, that I may know Him. Didn't Paul already know Him? Yeah. 
And we would think he was he knew him well. But yet Paul wasn't content. He wanted more of Christ. He wanted more of his glory. He wanted to behold more of his face because that's what a believer should long for. Long for God. Spend more time with him and commune with him. Have you ever had those moments you've spent time with the Lord in the morning and you're just overwhelmed by his glory as you've beheld him in the scripture? We don't always have that, do we? We don't always have the mountaintop experience. We have the day-to-day life experience. It's hard. We struggle. But if you're a believer, you know something of what it is to taste and see the goodness and glory of God in communion with Him. And we should long for more of that. That's what it is to be a Christian. To know God. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Of course, this book was written as a series of tests by which you could know if you know Him. If you believe the truth about Christ, if you obey His commandments, if you love your brother, you can be confident that indeed you know Him, and if you know Him, you're forgiven and in a permanent saving relationship with Christ. So all Christians know God. But there's a third thing that's true for all Christians, regardless of your spiritual maturity. Not only are all true Christians forgiven... Not only do all true Christians know God, but thirdly, all true Christians are overcomers. All true Christians are overcomers. Look at the second statement of verse 13. Second statement. After saying, I'm writing to you fathers, because you know Him who's been from the beginning, He says this, I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So now he transitions from children and fathers to young men. He addresses the young men. Who are they? Who are they? They're the ones in the middle class. They're the ones who are more mature than the children, but not as mature as the fathers. They've made some growth. They've got some theological firm convictions, but they're not yet as mature as the fathers. They're somewhere in the middle. And John's writing to them. Why? Why? Because you have overcome the evil one. Overcome the evil one. That word overcome, very interesting word, the word nikao. Nikao, it comes from the word nike, where we get the word victory from. And it's where we get our English word Nike from. So if you're wearing a pair of Nikes, and if I didn't have a suit on, I would be wearing a pair of Nikes. If you're wearing a pair of Nikes, that's what the word means. That's what the word nikao means, victory. It means victory. The word means, means to conquer, to prevail, to be victorious, to subdue means to overcome through victory. Overcome through victory. So John's writing to remind the young men that they are overcomers. They're victors, conquerors. And who have they overcome? Who have they overcome? The evil one. Who's that? The devil, Satan, the accuser of our brethren. The evil one. Our arch enemy, the serpent of old. Young men have overcome him. Overcome him. Now, is it just the young men that have overcome the evil one? What about us children and fathers? Where do we stand? Look at chapter 4. All Christians are overcomers. Let me show you this. Go to, go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and I want to read verse 4. Is it just the young men who overcome? Let's find out. John says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Who's overcome according to this verse? Those who are from God, believers, here refer to as little children, which is a reference, I think, here to all Christians. <coughs> they go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So who's the overcomers? Those born of God. Those born again, those who have come to faith in Jesus, and the victory is won by faith in Christ. All believers are overcomers. According to our text in chapter 2, verse 13, we've overcome the evil one. According to chapter 5, verse 4, we've overcome the world. Go back to chapter 4 now. Chapter 4. I'll read verse 4. John says, you're from God, little children, and have overcome them. Who's them? Who's them? Go back to verse 1 for the context. Verse 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Overcome who? The Antichrist. The false teachers. The false prophets. Those who are teaching by doctrines of demons, by the work of demons. We've overcome them. We've overcome them. What does it mean that we've overcome them? It means we've overcome their deception. We've overcome their enticement. We've overcome their fate. They're going to be damned. They're going to be destroyed. But believers will not perish. We have eternal life. We have gained the victory over them. The, the assault on the truth is relentless. It's over and over again. Never lets up. False teachers on every side that would tell you to come this way. Deviate from the truth. Come after me. And as believers, we don't do that. Because we've overcome them. We've overcome them. Why have we overcome? Is the source of the victory in ourselves? No. John 16.33 answers the question. Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. For 33 years, at every turn, Jesus rejected the satanic, wicked world system. He fully obeyed the will of God, the law of God. He went to the cross. He died for sinners. He rose again. He crushed the head of the serpent. And now He reigns victoriously at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He has overcome, and in Him you and I have overcome. We have victory in Jesus, right? We sing that, don't we? Victory in Jesus. I'll stop singing now. Right? Victory in Jesus. You didn't think I was going to sing during the sermon. I'll have to cut that out next time. I'll have to write in my notes, do not sing here. 1 John 4, 4 puts it this way. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is He who is in you, who's that? The Holy Spirit. Than he who is in the world, the devil. You overcome because of Christ, because of God, because of the Holy Spirit. And therefore you have victory in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But not us. Not us. We're not in that world, the world of the damned, the world of the enslaved. We're no longer ensnared by the devil to do his will. We've been liberated by Christ. We have victory in Christ. We've overcome. We're conquerors. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Glorious chapter. Romans 8. If I ever get there, it'll take me six years to preach Romans 8. Fantastic chapter. Paul says in Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? We could add COVID-19. We could add tyranny, Cuomo. We could add whatever you want. Can any of that separate us from the love of Christ? No. No. We are secure. Because he goes on and says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Huper nikao. Glorious word. Hyper Nike. Super conquerors in Christ. We have overwhelmingly conquered all of these things and our salvation is secure because we're in Christ. Now back to 1 John chapter 2. So while it's true that all believers are overcomers, it's peculiarly true of young men. Peculiarly true of the young men. This victory has both a positional reality and a practical reality. All believers will continue in the faith. None of us will be led astray into damnable heresy. We will all be kept faithful to the end and we will be brought into glory because of the grace of God. Because of who we are in Christ. But in a day-to-day practical reality, some believers experience this victory more than others. Look again at verse 14. The last statement. I've written to you young men because you are strong. You are strong. The young men are strong. They're mightier in the Lord than the children. They've grown. They're strong. Where do they get their strength from? God. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Our strength comes from God. 
Practically, though, how do we tap into that strength? How do we get it? How do we get it? Through the means of grace. Right? That's why we talk about the means of grace. God has deposited His sanctifying grace in these various things. He communicates it to us by these things, such as reading the Bible, prayer, etc. 2 Timothy 2, 1, Paul told Timothy, his young protege, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Our strength comes from the grace that is deposited for us in Christ. In Christ. But what do we do? How do we get it? Why are the young men so strong? Look at verse 14 again. It answers the question. You are strong, here's why, and the Word of God abides in you. That's why they're strong. That's why when the Mormons knock on the door, they can refute them and demolish them. That's why when the Muslim comes, you can demolish them because the young man is strong and the Word of God dwells richly in his heart. They're strong. Because of that, he says again at the very end, you have overcome the evil one. Just as our Lord in Matthew 4 overcame the temptations of Satan by quoting Scripture, so it is for the young man and all believers who let the Word of God abide in them. They can experientially overcome Satan. And that brings us to a final truth. I told you there's only three, didn't I? You don't have to pay for this one. This is four for the price of three. How about that? One more. One more truth. One more thing true for all Christians. All Christians need Scripture. All Christians need need Scripture. We see that in the six I am writing to you or I have written to you statement. What is John writing to them? This letter. What is this letter? Inspired Scripture. It is the Word of God. No matter where these believers were spiritually, they all needed the reminder that John had for them. They all needed the Word of God. And so it is with us. We need Scripture. If we're going to grow from children to young men to fathers, we need the Word of God. We need it. It's got to dwell in us. It's the primary means of grace. There is no shortcut. There's no shortcut in sanctification. 1 Peter 2.2, Peter said, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. Your spiritual maturity will be directly related to you letting the Word of God dominate your heart. Dominate your mind. Spurgeon said that if you cut John Bunyan, he'd believe Bibline. And if he speaks, he speaks Bible. His language is Bible. That should be true for all of us. We bleed Bible. We speak Bible. It's always on our minds and hearts and tongues and ears. We love the Word of God. We love the Word of God. All Christians need Scripture. You never outgrow your need for Scripture any more than you outgrow your need for food. Physical food provides sustenance and nourishment and growth physically. It's the spiritual food of God's Word that provides growth for us spiritually. We all need Scripture. So four things that are true for all Christians regardless of our spiritual maturity. All Christians are forgiven. All Christians know God. All Christians are overcomers. And all Christians need Scripture. Need Scripture. Now, as we close this morning, let me just provide you with four quick principles of application. <coughs> Number one, know your status. Know your status. Know your privileges. Know who you are in Christ. No matter how immature you are, how weak you are, how much you fail this week, if you're a believer, you're forgiven, you're in a saving communion with God, and you have overcome the world. You've overcome the devil. You've overcome his messengers, false teachers, because you have victory in Christ. So know your position. Secondly, pursue maturity. Pursue maturity. Do not content yourself with being a babe in Christ. Taking in the privileges of knowing God and being forgiven, but go deeper in that. Press on to young men and fathers. And we could add young women and mothers, right? That's when we bring in all of us. That's John's referring to all believers, by the way, not just men. Women, you can be fathers too. Not in the transgender sense, right? In the biblical sense of being a mature and strong Christian. So don't content yourself with a superficial knowledge of God. Go deep in communion with Him. Which brings me thirdly, thirdly, feed on the Word. Feed on the Word. 
you want to grow, you must take in the Word of God. And then finally, in the same line of thinking, commune with God. Commune with God. Don't just read your Bible to get a check in the box. Don't just read it as a chore. Read it to behold His glory. Read it because you love Him. Because you want to know Him. Read it devotionally. Read it worshipfully. Read it responsibly. Read it prayerfully. Read the Word of God. Pray. Seek His face. Commune with Him. And then you'll know Him more. You'll mature. Brothers and sisters, may it be said of us at Christ as King that we're a people in whom the Word of God abides richly, that we're strong, and we're overcomers because the Word reigns supreme in our hearts. Now what does all that have to do with what John just said? I mean, if you look at verses 12 to 14, it, verses 12 to 14 kind of seem difficult to fit in the context. In verses 7 to 11, we have the test of love part 1, the love that God requires. Verses 15 to 17, you get the test of love part 2, the love that God prohibits. What does 12 through 14 have to do with any of that? Here's the answer. 12 through 14 provides the basis for the exhortation to love. Why should you love your brother? Why should you not love the world? Because this is who you are in Christ. You're an overcomer in Him, a victor in Him, and therefore your life should display that reality. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, take courage in these great, great privileges and may the Word of God abide in us. Let's pray. Father, we're yet again grateful for the feast that we have had this morning on Your Word from Sunday school to hearing the Scripture read to singing the Word, praying the Word, preaching and hearing the Word. Now we'll come to the table and we'll see the Word visibly before us. We are just so thankful. That's why as a church we take Your Word seriously. We want it to abide in us. The only way we're going to be strong and and practically, experientially overcome temptation and deception on a day-to-day basis is if Your Word reigns supreme in our hearts. And when Your Word governs our thoughts, we know everything else falls into place. So Father, make us that kind of church. A Word-centered, biblical-centered church. And may You use us for Your glory. Amen.